Lecture 21. Are learning styles real? As we discussed last lecture, intelligence has been viewed as a capacity for learning, but increasingly looks like it might reflect people's learning history rather than necessarily their ability to learn in the future. And as we also considered, the history of IQ research has been very tarnished by its use for maintaining stereotypes about groups and justifying inequality. But we also noted the search for individual differences that are related to learning ability is far from over. Last time we touched on the idea that there may be individual differences in implicit learning. Such differences though remain totally consistent with the idea that some people are simply better than others at learning in general. An idea which many people find distasteful or troubling. It's certainly not egalitarian. Today, we'll consider two overlapping ideas about individual differences in learning that share a distinctly more optimistic message, namely that we're all good at some things but not others, and that we may all differ in the way we like to learn. And these ideas are respectively the notion of multiple intelligences and the notion of learning styles. Now, the idea of multiple intelligences was initially proposed by Howard Gardner several decades ago. From Gardner's view, an intelligence was a biopsychological information processing capacity. And the nature of an intelligence depended in part on the type of information that it was being used to process. So, in contrast to the kinds of abilities measured by IQ tests, Gardner argued that people actually demonstrate intelligence in what he called a domain-specific way. And because of this, If we focus too heavily on intelligence tests and IQ, we ignore many other ways in which people could demonstrate high levels of intelligence. Now, initially Gardner proposed seven kinds of intelligence. Logical mathematical intelligence, which is one of the kinds of intelligence assessed by IQ tests, was one. Now, this is the kind of intelligence that contributes to reasoning, mathematical computation, and other kinds of math and logic tasks. Now a second kind of intelligence Gardner proposed was spatial intelligence. This is a different kind of intelligence and it's also partially captured by IQ tests and it has to do with people's understandings of space. A third kind of intelligence is verbal intelligence and this is the kind of intelligence that lets people play with words, make elegant and persuasive arguments, understand and make inferences from what they read. Um, and even um, make a really good pun now and then. And this is a kind of intelligence that's also measured on IQ tests. Now, as an aside, some research suggests that this type of intelligence is the most evident to others, actually, and that verbal intelligence is one of the ways we come to decide that someone in our everyday lives is more or less intelligent. Now, in addition to those three, though, Gardner also proposed that there were interpersonal intelligences. These are the abilities to navigate relationships and social interactions with skill. And some people might actually call this political acumen. And there's also musical intelligence, which involves great abilities with melody and rhythm. And there's kinesthetic intelligence. This involves capacities for movement. Michael Jordan is a shining example of this kind of intelligence. 
And finally, Gardner proposed that there's a kind of intrapersonal intelligence, intelligence about the within the person. And this is the ability to be aware of your own feelings, motivations, and thoughts, and to be accurate in perceiving those feelings and motivations and thoughts. Now, more recently, Gardner has proposed that there might be additional kinds of intelligence having to do with spirituality and having to do with intelligence about nature and natural systems. But he cautions us that currently there's relatively little evidence to demonstrate that these new types of intelligence exist. And that brings me to the issue of what would we need to demonstrate that, that there is a kind of intelligence. Um, one thing we need is we need evidence that these different kinds of intelligence, these seven kinds that Gardner proposed, as well as any others, are actually separate from one another, that they're distinct abilities. Now, recall that last lecture we talked about this idea of a correlation. That's a number that indexes how closely related two different variables are to one another. Now, remember... Correlations can range anywhere between negative 1 and positive 1, and a correlation of 0 means there's no relationship between two variables, and a correlation of negative 1 or positive 1 means the two variables are perfectly related. If I know the value of one variable, I can tell you the value of the other. And positive correlations mean variables follow a pattern where more of one variable goes with more of another. We talked about more IQ being related to, say, more education. And negative correlations go in that other direction. The fewer stressful events in a person's childhood, the more life satisfaction the person experiences as an adult. Now, of course, in the real world of real data, we don't see correlations around one very often. We usually get numbers in between. And you may recall that correlations around point three suggest that two variables are meaningfully related, but they're still distinct. And correlations around point eight and up, point seven and up, suggest two variables are more or less capturing the same thing. Now, to collect this kind of evidence about distinct forms of intelligence, we face some problems. For many of Gardner's proposed intelligences, there aren't any easily administered tests. Now, for standard IQ tests, of course, we have those three. We, have, we can look at logical and mathematical intelligence, spatial intelligence, and verbal intelligence, and we can measure all three of those. And it turns out, in many cases where it's been possible to do so, the relationships among spatial intelligence and verbal intelligence, for example, they fall in a gray zone. They certainly are not zero. They're actually quite a bit larger than 0.3, which would suggest separate but related abilities. But they're not so large that you can definitely say these are one thing. That is, they fall a bit short of that 0.8 mark. In the rare cases where people have done more intensive assessments of abilities, like observing actual job performance... Those measurements also turn out to be highly correlated with IQ tests. So given what you know about confirmation biases, what this means is everyone can draw his or her own conclusion about those abilities. So researchers in favor of the idea of one intelligence view this evidence as indicating that Gardner's wrong. All intelligences are related. And in fact, one quote is, there are no multiple intelligences, but rather it is argued multiple applications of the same multifaceted intelligence. And not surprisingly, Gardner and his supporters view the evidence in precisely the opposite way. And this, after our lecture on learning as theory testing, should surprise none of us. It's confirmation bias in action. 
Well, let's suppose we throw Gardner a bone and we say, okay, let's treat these as distinct performances on tests that are related to distinct forms of intelligence. Let's assume they're not just multiple indicators of one underlying intelligence. So if we do that, there are two additional issues we have to resolve. Because for our purposes, we're not really interested in multiple intelligences per se. Rather, we're interested in whether different intelligences are related to differences in how different people learn. Now, at first, an obvious question is whether the intelligences relate meaningfully to learning. Are people better at learning in areas where they have higher intelligence? Possibly. Let's look at just one focused piece of evidence in this regard. In math and science, we often encounter material that's presented visually. So if we have higher spatial abilities or spatial intelligence, are we better able to learn from visualizations? Now remember, spatial intelligence includes things like navigation and wayfinding and constructing cognitive maps. It also includes some other visual abilities, like being able to mentally rotate an object we're looking at. Well, Tim Hoffler pooled a large number of studies to, to look at this question. And in general, across the studies that he looked at, higher spatial intelligence measured on standard IQ-type tests is associated with better learning from visualizations. So if I take someone who scored high on a spatial IQ test and I then give them some pictures, they learn more from those pictures or figures than someone whose score on the spatial IQ test was lower. But it matters what types of visual images you're trying to learn from. Hoffler also found, by comparing across different studies, that the effect was most evident when the visual images were static, because that means learners had to use their own mind to rotate the diagram, or they had to imagine how a process unfolded from the starting point that the diagram or figure depicted. When the images were made dynamic, people with lower visual ability we're able to benefit from visualization also. And we'll revisit this finding later in this lecture because it's pertinent to the topic of learning styles. So at least for spatial intelligence, it looks like learning from visualization is easier for those with higher spatial ability. But does this mean there are different intelligences? Or does it really mean that people who are more experienced in visualization as indicated by higher performance on a visual ability test, do better at learning from visualization. This is a second issue, and it's a trickier one in a way. As with standard IQ, is it possible that these intelligences reflect not some kind of pure ability in, say, spatial mental rotation, but instead they, they reflect an established expertise? In other words, if you have high verbal IQ, say, is it because you have a special aptitude or talent for learning verbal material? Or is it because you started reading early? That's something many kids can do, given the right context. And therefore, by IQ testing time in second grade or so, you'd learned a very large vocabulary and you had a big repertoire of knowledge about sentence structure because you just had more years of reading behind you. It is very difficult to disentangle these two issues. A priori ability versus the accumulation of more experience and expertise. If I have, in relative terms, a lousy kinesthetic IQ, and I'm going to assure you that I do, is it because during my childhood, I spent a lot of time on my bum reading rather than being out moving around? In both of these cases, as we've learned in, these, in this course, experience and prior learning give a person a leg up. 
And a lack of experience in prior learning can give someone a serious disadvantage when it comes to learning something that is related, although new. So the findings I just described about spatial intelligence and learning from visualizations hold. Those findings are real, but we might interpret them somewhat differently. We might interpret them as differences in existing knowledge that influence the ease of future learning. Some researchers actually think that our visuospatial IQ is actually increasing across the population because we are currently exposed to more images and more visual stimuli than we've ever been exposed to before historically. And while there are relatively few studies that really look directly at multiple intelligences and learning, there are many studies that show experts process new expertise-relevant information quite differently than novices. Here's an example. Where I, a novice player, see randomly distributed pieces on a chessboard, expert chess players see meaningful configurations that tell them how play has proceeded and also give them a really good sense of how play is likely to proceed in that game. Where my daughter, a non-pianist, hears melody, I both hear the melody and on a more tacit level, there's some part of me that also has a feel for the motor movements that are required to produce that melody. And you can also recall the early example in this course of golfers and non-golfers who were asked to learn series of actions, and golfers were better at learning the actions as long as they were related to golf. Now, while Gardner himself focused primarily on the concept of intelligences, many educators seized on his ideas as being relevant to differences in learning styles. And the idea that we have different learning styles is also enormously prevalent in today's world. Private schools promise, at some expense, to match instruction to your child's unique learning style. And you can hear people sometimes say things like, I'm not a very visual person. Learning styles are distinct from the idea of multiple intelligences because they're presumed to reflect differences in the way people learn rather than in their abilities per se. Now, one prominent example of learning styles is the VAK category system. And in this system, people are either visual, V, auditory, A, or kinesthetic, K, learners. There are other ideas out there. In fact, there are actually so many ideas out there, I could spend several years teaching you the details of all the available models. As of 2004, many years ago, there were 170 different models or measures of learning styles. So are learning styles real, and are they meaningful for thinking about the learning process? These are two different questions, and we're going to look at them in sequence. Are learning styles real? Yes. First, there are reliable, measurable differences in people's preferences about how they learn. These can be measured, and they can be described with most of those 170 different systems, although every system has its own idiosyncratic way of describing differences. To give you a concrete example, maybe you like listening to lectures as a way of learning. Or you might be a person who prefers to read about an issue you're interested in. And you might not really like to talk directly to an expert, and your friends may feel just the opposite. Some people think better when they're moving, running or walking, and others need to be very still. Many of you may need to touch something or build something to see how it works, and others might prefer to read about it and look at diagrams rather than get their hands dirty. 
So these preferences exist, and they're stable over time. That is, you don't change your mind about being an auditory learner over a period of a few months, although over decades, um, people's preferences can move around a little bit. And left to your own devices, these preferences will tell you something about how you might choose to learn when you are making all the choices. But does this mean learning styles or learning preferences matter for actual learning? Now, to think this through a bit, let's first step back and consider something about what we know of learning so far. We know that elaborative encoding is a very useful and helpful aid in learning. We know that most things we learn involve integrating across many areas of the brain. The brain actually works not in separated chunks, but in the interconnections across perception, sensation, memory, and association, motor skills, and planning and decision-making areas. Moreover, we know that prior knowledge and expertise matter enormously in learning. And all of that knowledge suggests that if we adapt material to, say, a preference for visual stimuli by keeping auditory information out of the picture, it doesn't make sense. It's not likely to help people learn better. It would result in less elaborative encoding because you've reduced one arena for the development of connections, an arena where there could be prior knowledge and experience that would facilitate learning. Going a bit further, we also know from the lecture on judgments of learning and choices about learning strategies that what people choose to do, their preferences for strategies in that particular case, doesn't always map onto what they ought to do to maximize learning. So the fact that I might choose a certain mode for learning when I have the freedom to do so doesn't always mean that that choice is what will serve me best. And this is the core issue. Do these preferences for different ways of learning have meaning in the sense that adapting teaching and learning contexts to the preferences of the individual results in better learning? And by that we might mean faster learning or we might mean learning that's better retained. And the answer to this question is, so far, no. The learning styles hypothesis has three components, and often we lump them together when we're thinking quickly, but it's important to elaborate them when we look for evidence in favor of learning styles. The first component of the hypothesis is this. People will learn better with one approach than with another. And the second component is, the approach that is best will differ for different people. Because otherwise, we're not talking about styles and individual differences, but about metacognition and learning strategies that work really well for everyone, like repeated testing. And the third, last, and most important component of the hypothesis is the idea that people will learn best when they are taught in a way that matches their learning style. Now, to fully test this hypothesis, researchers need to conduct studies where learning styles get identified, and within each group of people that shares a particular learning style, people are randomly assigned to either get instruction that matches their preferred style or to get instruction that doesn't match their preferred style. And then everyone gets evaluated for how much they've learned or how quickly they've learned after instruction using the same test. Now, the learning styles hypothesis would get supported if the results were something like the following. For each learning style group, people who got their matching instruction, like visual learners who got a visualization-heavy instruction, do better than participants who have that style but get, say, auditory instruction. Now, a comprehensive review of this literature by several prominent psychologists 
found a very tiny number of studies that actually tested the learning styles hypothesis in this way. One of their favorite studies looked at learning of computer-presented information about electronics and visual or verbal learning styles assessed in a number of different ways. Now, across three experiments, people were assigned to receive a help screen that was either verbal or visual in nature. And for some people, the help screen matched their preferences, but for other people, the help screen was at odds with their preferences, so a visual learner got a verbal help screen. Now, across all three of the studies, and many different ways of classifying people as visual or verbal learners, the researchers found no evidence at all that people should receive information matched to their learning style in order to optimize learning. Another example study assessed people's preferences for visual or verbal learning using a questionnaire. And people were then randomly assigned to be presented with a list of concepts visually in the form of line drawings, or verbally as a spoken list, or both visually and verbally. You saw the pictures and you heard the list spoken out loud. And then recall was used to, ex- to assess the extent to which participants had learned the lists. And in this case, visual presentation, with or without verbal stimuli, yielded superior learning, regardless of what participants preferred in terms of learning styles. Only one study of all the studies that the researchers looked at actually supported the idea of learning styles, and that particular study had some odd features. Somewhat unusual methods were used to assess learning outcomes, and the authors of this particular article felt like those features of the study made it somewhat suspect. It wasn't ideal evidence. So is the take-home message that everyone benefits from certain ways of learning and we should drop our search for individual differences that might require different approaches to learning? To some extent, yes. Given what we've covered thus far, multimodal presentation works better for most people, regardless of whether they are right or left-brained or VA or K. And visual presentations can be very strong for learning in general. We are very visual creatures. But our expertise or our prior learning about how to use visualizations is also going to matter in this regard. Let's focus on one area where there's good reason to keep investigating possibilities and to do so actively. Recall in the Bible, the book of Matthew, the phrase, To them that hath, more shall be given. We learn over and over and over again that there is a kind of Matthew effect in learning. To those that have more prior knowledge, more knowledge is acquired and with greater ease. Now, one good way to think about this phenomenon is that this is the core of specialization in a complex society. That is, I don't need to be kinesthetically gifted because most of what I do does not involve motor skill. I'm no surgeon, and my family can put up with my less-than-perfect skills at harvesting vegetables from our summer garden. So it's really okay. People differ in their experiences and their expertise, and they differ in their subsequent learning. Now, this is the idea of playing to one's strengths, and that is a very appealing idea. But often, the goal of an educator is to improve areas of weakness. You don't pay an expensive tennis coach to improve your perfect forehand. Rather, you pay him or her to help you shape a more effective serve out of your presently weak one. And therein lies a very different way of thinking about the findings we've reviewed today. The same psychologist who reviewed learning styles work and suggested there wasn't much to rely on there had the following take on this issue. 
We know there are enormous implications for learning of differences in prior knowledge. Instead of looking at multiple intelligences or learning styles as the place to fix the way we educate people, researchers interested in enhancing learning might spend more time and effort on other things. Specifically, they could focus on how we can assess individual differences in prior knowledge and how we can make use of that information to tailor education to what people do know and to where they need to learn more. Now, experienced teachers face this problem every single day in their classrooms and at every level, and many do a fabulous job of navigating what their students already know and getting those students to where they need to be for the next level. I routinely have students who know scientific methodology inside and out, sitting side by side with students who don't have a clue what would make for an experiment versus some other kind of study. My charge is to help the ones who know a lot already think about the tougher material and grow while also ensuring that the complete newcomers leave my course understanding the basics. Now, research in this area is in many ways not integrated into a single understanding, but we know enough to already outline some important possibilities just from previous lectures in this class, and those possibilities are supported by some findings in the available research literature. First, we discussed how more advanced and knowledgeable people may be better able to benefit from discovery-based learning as compared with truly novice learners. And that's consistent with the findings that discovery-based learning, in its moderate forms, actually works better in adulthood than earlier in the lifespan. It's also consistent with other research findings. For example, that more advanced learners, people who come in with more prior knowledge, they benefit from having less structure. That is, they do better when the teacher is less directive and when they get less explicit guidance. Less advanced learners, the people with less prior knowledge, actually benefit quite a bit from having the teacher do more explicit and directive things in the classroom, give them more structure. Now, second, understanding what assumptions learners bring to their learning can be really helpful for shaping the way that instruction unfolds. For introductory psychology majors, for example, they often don't conceive of psychology as a scientific field, and this needs to get introduced to them before we begin to lecture about this or that research experiment. For more advanced students within the major, the idea of psychological science is an old hat idea, and... Similar to this, when we discussed work on scientific understandings by Michelin Chi, we talked about the process of learning as a change in models. That change is easiest to support for learners if we know what the starting model is about. A third implication from our past work is that all people may benefit from knowing more about metacognition, the things that distort our understanding of our own learning, and the strategies that are effective but strangely unused by learners. Where learning styles may need to be retained as an idea is in the area of motivation. Now, while learning in one's preferred style may not have anything to do with learning outcomes, if it affects people's interests and motivations, it may still be a very useful concept for us to think about. And as we mentioned, preferences about how to learn are real and they are somewhat stable. It's really true that I prefer to read in order to learn, while my mother prefers to watch videos. So when we find a chef who can teach us how to prepare South Indian-style foods, my mother watches the chef's public television show, and I buy the chef's cookbook. So to some extent, 
learning styles may be a useful starting point for thinking about how to motivate people. And in the next lecture, we'll actually consider individual differences in interests and in motivation as they affect people's learning.